Again, our welcome to you on this final Sunday of the Easter season. With apologies for the technical complications that may have prevented some of you from being with us live, I do hope that the video of this service can be encouraging to you if you're watching this now at a later time in the day or in the week. Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. But I'd like for us to listen at the beginning of our time today to a very different part of Scripture. And if you have your Bible with you, I would ask you to turn back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Because this morning... Before we consider what Hebrews 9 verse 11 describes as the appearance of Christ as a high priest of the good things that have come, I want us to be reminded just how good are the things Christ, our high priest, has wrought. So then, if you can be in Isaiah chapter 1 to start, at the beginning of the vision of Isaiah, in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation! A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Such was the state of God's people, and it had resulted in judgment. Verse 7, your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Ah, oh, but you are like those wicked cities, the prophet declares. In verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
What are the people to do? <clears throat> Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The prophet Isaiah's message from the Lord is a call for the people to repent to turn from their evil ways and walk in righteousness, cease to do evil, learn to do good. And then comes the famous invitation. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The prophet says the sins of the people need not be an indelible mark against them. They can indeed be forgiven. The Lord urges them to consider their actual position before him, to examine their actions and to reasonably declare to be what they are. Sins that have utterly estranged them from the Lord. Their hands red with blood can be cleansed, the prophet declares, but not by the faithless repetition of many sacrifices. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats, says the Lord. All the animal sacrifices in the world wouldn't bring about the forgiveness of God's people which means all the animal sacrifices in the world, wouldn't lead to the one thing Isaiah says the people must have in order to enjoy a future with the Lord. Hearts willing to obey him. Look at it there in verses 19 and 20 of Isaiah chapter 1. This is where we'll end our reading of Isaiah, but I want it to stay with us as we turn now to Hebrews 9, because what was needed in Isaiah's day is the same thing that's needed in ours. What we need is willing obedience. Verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, the prophet says, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Last week in our study of verses 1 to 10 of Hebrews 9, we ended where the pastor did in verse 9. With the recognition that according to the arrangement of the earthly old covenant tabernacle and its sacrificial system, quote, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The old covenant system revealed what was then and is still now required to draw near to the Lord, that we be cleansed from an evil conscience. In Isaiah chapter 1, the people were utterly estranged from the Lord. Why? Isaiah doesn't use the language the pastor writing Hebrews does, but it's the same reality. 
Theirs were consciences dominated by sin and rebellion. Theirs were hearts of evil and unbelief. And as a result, they were a people laden with iniquity who had forsaken the Lord. But the invitation held out by the prophet is the same as that offered to us today. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Forgiveness and transformation are available. And those who have been forgiven and cleansed from sin so that they now live in willing obedience rather than in stubborn rebellion, those are they who are able to enter God's presence, to enjoy communion with the holy God forever. Hebrews 9 verses 1 to 10 told us what Isaiah had also confirmed the sacrifices of the Old Covenant could not give us that. Now today, Hebrews 9 verses 11 to 14 tell us what Isaiah knew, but only in shadow form, that what could give us that is the one-time New Covenant sacrifice of the Christ, the Son of God. And so that will be the focus of our time in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 9 this morning, the superior sacrifice of Christ. We'll work through that topic under two simple headings just to help us organize our thinking a little. First, we'll consider the superior offering of Christ himself and how that's unlike all the offerings that came before. And then secondly, we'll consider the superior outcome of that offering. The superior offering and the superior outcome. And we'll draw from the entire passage, though it is short, as we think some about both of those things. And I hope then you'll watch the text and I'll try to be clear about where we are within it. We begin with the superior offering. We'll talk about the offering itself in a moment, but before we do, the pastor makes the point that one way we know Christ's offering is superior is simply by virtue of where he is now. Listen again to verses 11 and most of 12. The pastor writes, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, for once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Those three words, his own blood, are, of course, the content of Christ's superior offering. We'll come back to that shortly. But first, what I want to focus your attention on are the three words that precede it, the words by means of. Because when you read verses 11 and 12 carefully, what you realize is that Christ's offering was so superior that it is in fact the means of his session at God's right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the pastor is saying, the offering Christ made was of such superior value to God that having made it, God the Father exalted his Son 
to his right hand. That is the context at the beginning of verse 11. Christ's appearance as a high priest of the good things that have come is his arrival in heaven. The second half of the verse makes that clear. For it was then, through the greater and more perfect tent, that he entered once for all into the holy places, as verse 12 says. Christ has come to the ultimate dwelling place of God, what Hebrews 8 verse 2 calls the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. That heavenly reality is the greater and more perfect tent through which Christ has passed, penetrating to the very throne of God, to the holy places, to the sanctuary in which he has now taken his seat at God's right hand. It's what the pastor described back in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The word that's translated appeared in the ESV in verse 11 of our passage has the sense of an official public appearance. Paul writes about this very moment in Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 when he says of the Son, and being found in human form, he, the Son of God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul declares, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? Because at the cross, Christ executed the plan of God from all eternity. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 20, concerning the Christ whose blood has ransomed us, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. The cross of Christ in the midst of history was the centerpiece of God's plan before the foundation of the world. And so, having made such a superior offering, he now sits enthroned as the exalted Savior in the heavenly places. Christ has returned to God's presence. But the pastor makes clear it is in a new capacity as the high priest of God's people. One writer says it this way, his earthly life of obedience and suffering has been completed on the cross and he has now fulfilled the divine invitation to sit at God's right as the savior of humanity. His arrival in this high priestly office at the father's right hand is an established fact and the benefits he now provides here called good things are available for the people of God. This is what we saw in the very opening verses of Hebrews as well. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the pastor says of the Son, whom God had appointed the heir of all things before time began, in Hebrews 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What did the son do to become so vastly superior? He made purification for sins. He carried out the will of his father, as we'll see when we study Hebrews 10 in the weeks ahead. And the father, in recognition of all his son had accomplished, honors him for all eternity. He will sit at his father's right hand as a priest forever. Hebrews 5, verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I like the way one commentator says it, Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his session at God's right hand must be neither separated nor confused. If the first is the means of the second, the second is the confirmation and consummation of the first. Or if I can return us to the words of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The offering of Christ is the eternally superior offering. It was the plan of God from the beginning of time. And just what is it? The answer comes in verse 12 and then again in verse 14. As the pastor says in verse 12, the offering is his own blood. He entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. It will seem obvious to you who have been around in the church or in read your Bibles over the years but in the reference to the blood of Christ, there is meant the reference to the cross on which Christ died. The shedding of blood in the Bible is the offering of a life. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. Or a few verses later in the same Leviticus 17 but verse 14, the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. In the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, the shed blood of the goats and the calves represented the lives of those who offered them, poured out in death. But Christ offered his own blood, the pastor says, his shed blood was his willing offering of his life through death on the cross. And verse 14 helps us to better understand this. There in verse 14, the pastor explains it is the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. 
that will purify our conscience, as we'll see. But notice how it's Christ's offering of himself that's in view. In the shedding of his own blood, Jesus Christ was offering his life, a life the pastor describes as being without blemish. That terminology was often used to describe in the Old Testament the goats and bulls of the Old Covenant, which were to be offered without physical blemish. But again now, it's the Apostle Peter who picks up the analogy in 1 Peter 1, verse 19, when he says the blood of Christ was like that of a lamb without blemish, blemish or spot. Of course, the point isn't that Jesus was physically without imperfections, but that by his incarnate obedience, Christ offered himself without moral imperfections, without moral blemish, in a final act of obedience on the cross, for only then could his offering of himself be made not for himself, but for others. And how did he do it, according to the pastor? We're told in verse 14, it was through the eternal spirit. I think the pastor refers here to the work of the Holy Spirit of God in Jesus's earthly life. It was through the eternal spirit, for this has always been the plan of the eternal Godhead. It was through the eternal spirit that Jesus, the man, lived a life without blemish, and it was by the empowerment of that Holy Spirit that he would obey the will of his Father all the way to the cross. Jesus' life and ministry at every point was empowered by the Holy Spirit. His willingness to go to offer his own blood was no exception to that. The pastor stresses that the Spirit of God empowered and strengthened Jesus to give himself to God, his Father, as a sacrifice. It was a life of obedience that culminated in the cross. Jesus lived and Jesus died by the power of the Holy Spirit. For as Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Oh, but that would not be the end of the Spirit's work in Jesus' life. For as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, this same Jesus who through the eternal Spirit offered himself to God would, Romans 1, verse 4, be declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. His was the superior offering. Now, in the time that remains this morning, we consider that offering's superior outcome. Look back again at verse 12. The pastor says, He entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
The word used for redemption signifies the paying of a price. In order to obtain freedom from bondage for those redeemed. And there's a biblical background for the term. The Greek Old Testament often uses that verb form to speak of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. The oppression under Pharaoh had prevented God's people from serving him in the promised land. Long ago, God had redeemed them from that bondage, but Christ has now obtained a redemption that delivers them from something far deeper. We've encountered this idea already in our study in Hebrews. We heard the language of slavery and bondage back in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Listen to that text again. Since therefore, the pastor says, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here's how another commentator puts it. Christ has provided for their liberation from the corruption of sin that prevents fellowship with God in the heavenly homeland and thus from the fear of death and judgment endemic to humankind. Because here's the point we started with this morning. The sacrifices of the old covenant couldn't cleanse the heart and bring God's people into his presence. Verse 9 said as much, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciences of the worshiper. The blood of goats and bulls couldn't do that. The sprinkling with the ashes of a heifer couldn't do that. The entirety of the old covenant sacrificial system couldn't do that. It wasn't ever what it was for. The pastor says clearly in verse 13, the blood of animal sacrifices sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. The Old Covenant sacrifices provided a ritual purification that permitted God's people to participate in the worship of the Mosaic Tabernacle and in the community life of the people of God. But they didn't cleanse the inner person or the conscience. They cleansed the flesh or body of those who were defiled. They removed ceremonial uncleanness the whole sacrificial system was restricted to outward purification. And as such, it could do nothing more for the people than point them to the true inward purification necessary for approaching the Lord. And so finally now look at verse 14. We've already talked about part of the verse, but now we see the whole thing in context. If outward cleansing was available through those old covenant rituals, how much more, the pastor asks, is true inward cleansing available through the blood of Christ? And just what will the blood of the obedient incarnate Son of God do? The answer comes at the end of verse 14 in the end of our passage this morning. It will purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. We said a little last week about the conscience in Hebrews. The bottom line as I see it is that the pastor uses conscience to mean essentially the same thing he means by the removal of sin from the heart. One scholar says, conscience embraces the whole person in relationship to God. It's a way of describing the inner reality, the core of the person, the place where we really are who we are. Under the new covenant, there is a purification available which goes to the center. Have you experienced it? In chapter 3, verse 12, the pastor said, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Any cleansing that does not address that level of our being will not suffice. This purification works in two directions, if you will. There is first a purification from dead works, the pastor says, from the sinful acts of disobedience that come from death and lead to death because they lead us away from the living God. Which is why second, the blood of Christ then purifies to serve the living God. The cleansing provided by Christ purges the true inner person of believers so that they can obey the living God. For as the promise of the new covenant from Jeremiah made clear, the dead works so purged will be replaced by God's laws written on the heart. Christ's sacrifice achieves a true inner moral and spiritual transformation. The result is an obedient life in reliance upon God. And so as we come to an end, I ask you, is, am I describing your life? We come back to the point of Isaiah 1, verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It wouldn't be the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats that would change the hearts of the people. For as the pastor will say in Hebrews 10 verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What was required of the people then is what is required of us today. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Christ, our high priest, has appeared, brothers and sisters. Having secured an eternal redemption, he has entered once for all into the holy places, a forerunner on our behalf. Indeed, the good things have come. Cleansing from sin. Access to God. The empowerment to walk in obedient fellowship with the Lord, free from any motivation caused by guilt or fear. The pastor's application to his hearers. 
can be ours as well. Through him, then, the pastor will write in Hebrews 13, verse 15, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.